Hello and welcome to this edition of the FT Advisor podcast. I'm David Thorpe, Special Projects Editor at FT Advisor. Today we are discussing the prospects for income investors at a time of higher inflation. After many years where assets yielded very little, yields have now picked up but in many instances remain negative in real terms. Joining me to discuss the dilemma are Job Curtis, manager of the City of London Investment Trust, David Jane, manager of the Cautious Multi-Asset Income Fund and other mandates at Premier Mighton, and Robert Ulster, Chief Investment Officer at Close Brothers Asset Management. Thank you all for joining me. Robert, if we come to you for the first question, how does high inflation change the way that you think about and income portfolios for your clients. Yeah, obviously very um, topical talking about high inflation. I guess the, the first thing to consider is we're looking for, for higher yields. Um, that's uh, the natural place to go to. And um, no doubt we'll discuss this later, but that also then induces a whole problem about how much credit risk you'll be taking on as you do that. So um, that's the first thing. And I guess also we've all become complete inflation watchers, forecasters and predictors trying to get the pivot point at which um, the Fed, the Bank of England, etc., will start lowering yields and when there's peak inflation. Um, and the third point is lowering the duration of um, the portfolios and um, thinking about how to be at short duration, when to move duration up, and just thinking about duration in a way that for many years um, it was very much on the sidelines. So off the top, that's, that's how um, we're thinking about um, inflation in the, the income portfolios that we manage. Thank you. Um, David, you're multi-asset, but you have that interesting word cautious in your, in your mandate. And that brings together, you can you know, take more credit risk or more, more economic sensitivity in, in a portfolio to get higher yields. But can you do that in a cautious way? Absolutely. And I think the thing that people have missed in the last decade, you know, we had a decade of very strongly rising capital values. And far too many end investors were driven into total return products when looking at post-retirement income, they'd go into their advisor and they'd say, look, I want a, an income of X pounds a month and I want to grow it in line with inflation. And they'd come away with a growth product. And that is where caution was thrown to the wind, in my view. If you have a cautious approach to post-retirement, you want to invest in an income product that grows its income over time. And if you set a manager such as myself that task, that's what you'll focus on. And I sit down every single day and I think, how am I going to grow this income on this portfolio in line with inflation? Now, what I would say is actually, it's a damn sight easier than it was two or three years ago. Because, you know, here we are sitting with much higher yield. You can buy UK investment grade corporates even less than two years for five and a half, six percent yields today. Now, the yield on my overall portfolio is only about four or so. I will grow it ahead of inflation again this year. So the challenge is much less. The, the point is, where did you start from? Mm -hmm. You know, if you started from a portfolio that was very aggressively directed towards growth assets, you'd have experienced a huge drawdown this year and you'd have no capital to buy that income with. 
if you started with a portfolio that was focused on the client in need, which is growing income in retirement, you've done perfectly well this year. Thank you. And Job, as the as the equity manager in the in the room, how do you uh, square that dilemma of um, keeping the yield um, attractive in in real terms relative to the potential for having to take more risk? Well, in the equity market, there are winners and losers, and certainly in inflation, we've seen whether you like it or not, big oil's been a winner with the big move in the oil price. And in recent years, you know, you've had some commodity inflation in iron ore, and miners have paid spectacular dividends, for example. In general, uh, we're kind of looking carefully at those companies that are best able to pass on cost increases. Um, often they're in the kind of consumer staples area. And one good example that we own is Nestle, where one of their main categories is pet food. And the human beings all over the world, they're incredibly reluctant to skimp on food for their pets. And so it's one of the most resilient categories. Um, uh, so on the other hand, areas which might have more trouble passing on uh, in cost increases would be, say, high-end discre- consumer discretionary type purchases. And um, so uh, they, they're probably kind of areas which would be less well-placed in a high-inflation era. Thank you. And and to stay with you, Job, for the next question, it's, it's felt until probably this year that clients almost had to choose between buying something that would that would go up in capital terms or something that had an income. Very, very few things out there were, were able to do both. But can one now achieve a mixture of both some capital gain, maybe Nestle is not a great capital gain stock, I don't know, and some uh, income as well? Yes, I think the last few years up until the beginning of this year have been an incredible era for growth stocks with ultra low interest rates, almost like free money. And um, as a result, the sort of value of future profits um, was kind of enhanced. Um, And there's been a big change this year with the rise in interest rates and bond yields. It means that value of future profits has, has gone down the discount rate has changed. Uh, so, you know, we are in a, a different era. I think that um, having said that, you know, if you look at over the very long run for, in the equity market, a lot of the total, a significant part of the total return has come from dividends and income. I mean, it's not just the UK, it's also the US and, and other overseas markets. And people have ignored that. So I would say for sure you can find companies, uh, stocks, a combination of um, income and, and capital appreciation. So, and, and I think that's a good strategy. Thank you. And David, how do you think about that question? As a multi-asset well, investor, you can obviously uh, range far and wide, but can can you get that capital growth as well? I, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, the year I see for the next 10 years is one where, whilst you know, today we might say, oh, inflation's likely to come down over the next six months, structurally it's going to be higher. We're in an era of shortage. You know, the, the, the last decade was an era of abundance. We're now in an era of shortage. So, so many major industries, whether that's oil, as you've already mentioned, but we could also say agricultural commodities, we could say fertiliser, we could say paper and packaging, we could say steel. All of these fundamental basic human needs are in shortage globally, particularly if you assume the population is going to grow and incomes are going to grow. These industries have suffered gross levels of underinvestment for a very long period of time. At the same time, they're also the cheap ones. So the cheap ones with the high yields are going to be growing the fastest against an environment where inflation is relatively high. So within the equity market, find good, strong valuations with good and growing incomes 
is fundamentally a walk in the park. You know, you can just look at the performance this year. You know, if you don't energy, you've made money. If you don't any, almost anything else, you've lost money. So this is a fabulous environment for an income-focused investor. But the same goes, of course, across all the asset classes. Although we can't get positive real yields yet on fixed income securities, so you still have to stay very, very short duration, we can get much higher absolute yields. So the cheap parts of the market are the ones where you're most likely to get high capital gains. And the same goes for other non-equity and bond assets. You know, if we're thinking about real assets such as commodities, iron ore, agricultural commodities, all of these are also inflating over the long term, will diversify your overall portfolio and offer good returns over time. Thank you. And Robert, presumably at, at Close Brothers, Asset management, you have clients who, who care more about growth and those who care more about income, but is it possible to... Uh, yeah, I mean, no, I totally agree about it. You know, it's about having a multi-asset portfolio here because you've got um, corp- really good corporate bond yields available at the moment, um, such that, I mean, what they, some of the yields and those have doubled over the last sort of eight or nine months. At the same time, you know, you've got the equities that are going to provide the future yield growth as well. Um, But you have to take that multi-asset approach. Um, We're also mentioning alternatives, because the number of alternatives where, um, you know, they're good yields, they also can be inflation-linked by whether it's their pricing or um, the way that they get revenues in. So there's a number of ways, but you have to be obviously aware of evaluation as you travel through time. But So, yeah, I'm in total agreement. Thank you. And David, how, how can that balance be achieved between investments that have a, a high yield now and those which have a yield that is continuing to grow in, in, in future? Well, that's ultimately is the key to portfolio management. And actually, I'm going to answer a slightly different question, if you don't mind. But, you know, because essentially the question is leaning towards, you know, obviously equities will have growing dividends over time. Fixed income is fixed income, and and we want to balance like a solid level of income with a growing level of income. Absolutely correct. However, the traditional approach of trying to achieve risk management through blending equities and bonds is not going to work in the next 10 years. People have experienced a 20, 30-year period with with bonds being negatively correlated to equities, and therefore the secret sauce was blend your fixed income, good steady income with your growing income equities. And when the equities went down, your fixed income went up. That is not going to work in a higher inflation environment. Through most of history, it didn't work. We had a unique period from the early 80s onwards where equities and bonds were negatively correlated. Through most of history, they haven't been, except perhaps in shock periods. But broadly, that will not work going forward in a high inflation environment. So when looking for your inflation-protecting assets in in your equities, to blend them from a risk point of view, you're going to have to look elsewhere than fixed income over the next decade. Now, it doesn't mean fixed income doesn't have a role to to provide a basic background income in a portfolio, but using it as a risk management tool is not going to work going forward. And I think that's a critical message that people need to understand. Thank you. And Job, how do you balance that up? buying you know equities that have a very high headline yield today relative to those that can grow it in in future i know that your your trust has 
increase its dividend by, you'll tell me how many years in a moment. But um, I know that you've done that for many years. And how, how do you strike that balance between those two things? Yes, I mean, the Investment Trust in London has uh, it's 56 years, but it's used revenue reserve as part of the Investment Trust structure. But coming back to your question, um, I think there's all for the equity income investor, the Achilles heel is the so-called value trap, which is a company that's over-distributing and not investing enough for future and ultimately cuts its dividend. And they are poor investments. And so I'm always seeking to avoid them. I have to admit, I don't always succeed. You sometimes, you, you're in one and you don't realise it. But um, but the sweet spot is the company with a decent yield and also growth and investing enough for future profits growth. And that's definitely what we're seeking to achieve. So, um, I mean, I would argue um, those investments you know, do very well over the long run. You know, they, they don't, in a kind of raging bull market, they may look a bit pedestrian, but um, but certainly in years like we've had this year, that they, they, that kind of combination of total return, um, sort of decent income and rising dividend, and, you know, is, is a very comforting feature in, in an equity to have. Thank you. And Robert, how do you think about that question? You can get a very high headline yield today, I'm, I'm sure, and, you know, Mm. are very happy, but in terms of keeping that going into the into the future and having things well, that grow. I'd agree about the the whole way of looking at um, the companies on the equity side. Um, I mean, obviously, investors have been quite badly scarred by what happened in COVID with the dividend cuts and that yield sort of being built back steadily since that time. Um, I also wonder going forward about this whole issue between bonds and equities, whether in the UK there might not be a structural switch if you to, towards equities in view of how the pension fund's uh, equity bond balance has been trending over, what I don't know, since I've been in the market, sort of the 80s, and I'm beginning to wonder, especially with um, the liability-driven investment issue of recent times, whether there is going to be a switch back to equity. But yeah, again, coming forward to your question, it's about getting the mix of equities and bonds and holding, um, you know, we're buying big, a large number of those corporates at the moment to lock in those yields. Thank you, Robert. We've had a, a strange situation where, well, we had until this year a situation where it was almost a case of buying bonds for capital appreciation and, and equities for income. It, it, it was very distorted. But are we going back to the traditional role of fixed income of, I think David mentioned it, just providing some income in a, in a portfolio and, and that's it? Yeah, um, I take David's point about the, the, the long history. I was looking back at the sort of the performance of the 6040 portfolio as well and went back about 50 years and it, it hasn't done that badly until sort of relatively recently. So you've got to sort of be a bit careful here about making sort of, you know, big assertions about the future here in terms of that, that balance. Um, I'm not so sure that the 6040 is dead in a sense. So that's that's the, p the perspective we come from. Thank you. Job, I know that your trust tends to have a, a lot of focus, certainly historically, on, on larger cap um, equities. Yes. Um, <laughs> how does the relative performance of sterling um, impact on, on those? We, we don't need to go into numbers about where sterling might be because it's probably changed <laughs> since we started this podcast, but um, yes. in, in general terms. Yes, well, I think... Um, in the large cup area, the, the companies tend to be more international than the medium and smaller companies um, as a generalisation. And so a decline in sterling, as, as we've seen, um, is, is, is quite helpful, actually. And a lot of our companies, you know, either have overseas operations, you know, a lot of them have overseas operations, so they're benefiting 
in translation as, as they um, translate back their profits. And in fact, quite a few major UK listed companies actually declare their dividends in US dollars. So, mm-hmm. so the, the decline in sterling is certainly uh, helpful to um, uh, to a UK investor in UK equities, domestic investor. I mean, obviously, wash us through a bit if, if more if it's um, an overseas investor. Thank you. And is it uh, just a question of the the translation effect, as you mentioned, or is there also um, an element of um, it gives you exposure to, to other economies and that might be more attractive now? Yes, absolutely. It, d- it does. Um, and, you know, again, some of the major companies listed on the stock market, like the miners, are heavily exposed to Chinese growth, effectively. Mm-hmm. Um, the other companies like Diageo, their biggest markets, United States, um, for alcoholic beverages. And and so you have, um, and you can think of other examples for Asia Pacific, you've got major UK listed companies which are mm-hmm. predominantly exposed to overseas economies, which, you know, quite often have been growing faster than the UK economy. Thank you. And David, does, does uh, Sterling's uh, relative performance matter when you're, when you're putting together your cautious income fund? Well, absolutely. The challenge you have is, of course, you're distributing sterling-based dividends and you need to grow those sterling-based dividends over time. But, you know, in an era of sterling weakness, you, you, you're obviously going to have a tendency to want to own overseas or non-sterling type assets. But, you know, we're, we call ourselves a cautious fund. And the big challenge you have is, do you want currency risk, which is, in my view, the place where you ought to argue you've got the least skill, to be the dominant risk in a portfolio. And that's essentially the situation that it's easy to find yourself in this year, you know, where sterling has had a huge move, you know, and obviously your overseas assets have done fabulously. US market, I think, is even today is up in sterling this year. And it's clearly been in you know, a very nasty bear market. So that's the degree to which you've seen sterling move you end up with sterling being the dominant risk in your portfolio. So we sit back and just say, look, what what is, you know, an acceptable level of risk to take against what arguably is the most random asset class? I can see very good reasons why sterling's gone down. I see very good reasons why the dollar's going up. I can see very good reasons why all other currencies fall. It is the global reserve currency at the end of the day. So um, they get to call the shots. But at the same time, you know, we're here running a cautious fund. We need to mitigate that risk by holding a material amount of sterling, the lowest we've ever held, I have to admit. Thank you. And Robert, presumably your your clients are, are in the UK and yeah. that, that, you yeah. know, that income that they get, they, they plan to spend in the UK. Yeah. How does that interact with the the translation effect that's that's available on some investments as, as Joe? Yeah, I mean, obviously there's been a huge beneficiary of um, you know, translation effect, but um, you know, like David, I, I do feel you know, you, being a currency trader or currency forecaster doesn't work. I mean, I can remember sterling falling through two. I've had debates with people at one forty that you know, there's just no way it can go. I've had debates at one twenty, and then last week I had a similar <laughs> debate, and we were about I think it was one o five on the day. <laughs> so um, I think with that experience, you just think, well, okay, you've been a beneficiary, but you've got to think about the longer term in terms of the equities where the companies are based their fundamentals and we have the benefit of being able to be multi-regional so that we sort of put the currency to one side um it could you know we could be sitting here in six weeks and it could be 80 so for us it's back to the company fundamentals 
longer term, really, and back to the issues about dividend growth cover. Thank you for that, Robert Ulster, Chief Investment Officer at Klaus Brothers Asset Management. And thank you to Job Curtis, Manager of the City of London Investment Trust, and David Jane, Manager of the Cautious Multi-Asset Income Fund at Premier Martin, for joining me today. And thank you all for listening. Please do remember to tune in to future editions of the FT Advisor podcast. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.